This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello. In this episode, a potpourri of different items, or as I much prefer to say, a potpourri. And we start in 1737, on the 31st of July, as the Princess of Wales is delivered of a daughter. Lord Hervey writes this, and we learn that Frederick, Prince of Wales, had married Augusta, daughter of Frederick II of Saxony, in 1736. The birth described below was of their first child, also called Augusta. Relations between the prince and his father, George II, had been bad for a long time. After this episode, he was banned from St. James's Palace and foreign ambassadors were requested not to visit him. Lord Hervey, the narrator, was vice-chamberlain in the royal household. I am now come to a very extraordinary occurrence, in which I shall be very particular. It had long been talked of that the prince intended the princess should lie in in London, and the king and queen having resolved she should not, measures were concerting to prevent her doing so. It was at last resolved, that is, the King and Queen and Sir Robert Walpole had agreed, that the King should send a message to the Prince to tell His Royal Highness that he would have the Princess lie at Hampton Court. Lord Hervey told the Queen and Princess Caroline that notwithstanding this message, he would answer for it the Princess would not lie in where the King and Queen resided. The Queen asked him how he could imagine, and as insolent as the Prince was, that he would venture to disobey the King's positive commands on this point. Lord Hervey said the Prince would pretend it was by chance, for as Dr Hollings and Mrs Cannons would be made to say that exercise was good for the Princess in her condition, she would be carried once or twice a week to Kew or London, and whichever of these two places the Prince intended she should lie in at, he would make her, when she was within a month of her time, affect to be taken ill, and as nobody could disprove her having the pain she would complain of, the king and queen could not take it in prudence upon them to say she should be removed, and there, of course, her royal highness would bring forth. Well, if it is to be so, replied the queen, I cannot help it, but at her labour I positively will be. Let her lie in where she will, for she cannot be brought to bed as quick as one can blow one's nose, and I will be sure it is her child. For my part, I do not see she is big. You all say you see it, and therefore I suppose it is so, and that I am blind. The Queen was every day pressing Sir Robert to have this message sent to the Prince, saying, Sir Robert, we shall be catched. We, he will remove her before he receives any orders for her lying in here, and will afterwards say that he talked so publicly of his intentions, he concluded if the king had not approved of them, he should have heard something of it. Sir Robert said, as the princess did not reckon till the beginning of October, that it was full time enough, and in this manner, from day to day, this intended message was postponed till it never went. For on Sunday, the 31st of July, the princess was taken in in the evening after having dined in public that day with the king and queen, so very ill with all the symptoms of actual labour that the prince ordered the coach to be got ready that moment to carry her to London. 
Her pains came on so fast and so strong that her water broke before they could get her out of the house. However, in this condition, Monsieur de Noyer, the dancing master, lugging her downstairs and along the passages by one arm, and Mr. Bloodworth, one of the prince's equerries, by the other, and the prince in the rear, they, with much ado, got her into the coach. Lady Archibald Hamilton and Mr. Townsend remonstrating strongly against this imprudent step, and the princess begging, for God's sake, the prince would let her stay in quiet where she was, for that her pains were so great she could not set one foot before the other, and was upon the rack when they moved her. But the prince, with an obstinacy equal to his folly, and a folly equal to his barbarity, insisted on her going, crying, Courage! Courage! Ah, quel sottise! Presumably courage, courage, el quel sottise. And telling her, with the encouragement of a tooth-drawer, of the consolatory tenderness of an executioner, that it would be over in a minute. With these excitations, and in this manner, after enjoining all his servants not to say one word what was the matter, for fear of the news of the princess's circumstances should get to the other side of the house and their going should be prevented, he got her into the coach. There were in the coach, besides him and her, Lady Archibald Hamilton, and Mrs. Clavering and Mrs. Payne, two of the princess's dressers, Vreed, his valet de chambre, who was a sergeant and a man midwife, was upon the coach box, Mr. Bloodwith, and two or three more behind the coach, and thus loaded he ordered the coachman to drive full gallop to London. About ten, this cargo arrived in town notwithstanding all the handkerchiefs that had been thrust one and after another up her royal highness's petticoats in the coach, her clothes were in such a condition with the filthy inundations which attend these circumstances that when the coach stopped at St. James's, the prince ordered all the lights to be put out that people might not have the nasty ocular evidence which would otherwise have been exhibited to them of his folly and her distress. When they came to St. James's, there was no one thing prepared for her reception. The midwife came in a few minutes, napkins, warming pan, and all the other necessary implements for this operation, were sought by different emissaries in different houses in the neighbourhood, and no sheets being to come at. Her Royal Highness was put to bed between two tablecloths. At a quarter before eleven, she was delivered of a little rat of a girl, about the bigness of a good large toothpick case, none of the lords of the council being present, but my Lord President Wilmington and my Lord Godolphin, Privy Seal. To the first of these, the Prince, at leaving Hampton Court, had dispatched a messenger to bring him from his villa at Chiswick, and the last, living just by St James's, was sent for as soon as the Prince arrived in town. He also sent to the Lord Chancellor and the Archbishop, but one was gone into the country, and the other came a quarter of an hour after the child was born. In the meantime, this evening at Hampton Court, the King played a commerce below stairs, the Queen above at Quadrille, the Princess Emily at her commerce tail, and the Princess Caroline and Lord Hervey at Cribbage, just as usual, and separated all at ten of the clock. And what is incredible to relate went to bed all at eleven without hearing one single syllable of the princess's being ill, or even of her not being in the house. At half an hour after one, which was about two hours after the princess had been brought to bed, a courier arrived with the first news of her being in labour. 
When Mrs. Tichburn, the woman of the bedchamber, came to wake the king and queen, the queen, as soon as she came into the room, asked what was the matter that occasioned their being waked up so unusual an hour, and as the most natural question inquired if the house was on fire. When Mrs. Tichburn said the prince had sent to let their majesties know the princess was in labour, the queen immediately cried, My God, my nightgown! I'll go to her this moment! Your nightgown, madam, replied Tichburn, and your coaches too. The princess is at St. James's. Are you mad? interrupted the queen, or are you asleep, my good Tichburn? You dream! When Mrs. Tichburn insisted on its being certainly true, the king flew into a violent passion and in German, as the Queen told me afterwards, began to scold her, saying, You see now, with all your wisdom, how they have outwitted you. This is all your fault. There is a false child that will be put upon you, and how will you answer to all your children? We have two separate accounts now of the arrest of Dr. Crippen. The first, the shorter one, from the Daily Telegraph of the 1st of August, 1910. Dr. Crippen and Miss Lelev were arrested on board the Canadian Pacific Company's liner Montrose at nine o'clock yesterday morning. Wearing the uniform of a pilot, Inspector Dew, accompanied by four officers of the Canadian police, boarded the liner about two miles from Father Point. Crippen was walking on deck. The inspector approached him from behind and touched him on the shoulder. He turned round sharply and there was a mutual recognition between him and the inspector. There's your man said Inspector Dew to one of the Canadian officers, and Crippen accompanied his captors to a cabin where he was formally arrested for the murder of his wife. I'm rather glad the anxiety is over, appears to have been the only remark he made. The inspector then went to Miss Lenève. She was reading a book, and on looking up at her visitors, immediately guessed what their purpose was. She is said to have uttered a piercing scream and grew suddenly calm and submitted to arrest. Subsequently, she completely collapsed. We have long since grown used to the wonders of telegraphy, but wireless is still a miracle to all but the learned in science, and when the clue, unfound on land, leapt suddenly out of the darkness of the night from an unseen ship far out at sea, it must have seemed to many little short of supernatural. Well, let's now fill in some of the gaps in that report by picking up Captain H.G. Kendall's report uh, from the Canadian Pacific liner, the Montrose. He was the master. The Montrose was in port at Antwerp when I read in the Continental Daily Mail that a warrant had been issued for Crippen and Lenev. They were reported to have been traced to a hotel in Brussels, but then had vanished again. Soon after we sailed for Quebec, I happened to glance through the porthole of my cabin and behind a lifeboat I saw two men. One was squeezing the other's hand. I walked along the boat deck and got into conversation with the elder man. I noticed there was a mark on the bridge of his nose through wearing spectacles and that he had recently shaved off a moustache and that he was growing a beard. The young fellow was very reserved and I remarked about his cough. Yes, said the older man, my boy has a weak chest. I'm taking him to California for his health. I returned to my cabin and had another look at the Daily Mail. I studied the description and photographs issued by Scotland Yard. Crippin was 50 years of age, 5 foot 4 inches high, wearing spectacles and a moustache. Miss Lenev was 27, 5 foot 5 inches, slim, with pale complexion, 
I then examined the passenger list and ascertained that the two passengers were travelling on a Mr. Robinson and Son ticket. I arranged for them to take meals at my table. When the bell went for lunch, I tarried until the coast was clear, then slept into the Robinson's cabin unobserved, where I noticed two things, that the boy's felt hat was packed round the rim to make it fit, and that he had been using a piece of woman's bodice as a face flannel. That satisfied me. I went down to the dining saloon and kept my eyes open. The boys' manners at table were ladylike. Later, when they were promenading on the saloon deck, I went out and walked behind them and called out, Mr. Robinson! I had to shout the name several times before the man turned and said to me, I'm sorry, Captain, I didn't hear you. This cold wind is making me deaf. In the next two days, we developed our acquaintance. Mr. Robinson was the acme of politeness, quiet-mannered, a non-smoker. At night, he went on deck and roamed about on his own. Once the wind blew up his coattails and in his hip pocket, I saw a revolver. After that, I also carried a revolver, and we often had pleasant little tea parties together in my cabin, discussing the book he was reading, which was The Four Just Men, a murder mystery by Edgar Wallace, And when that little fact was wireless to London and published, it made Edgar Wallace's name ring. So agog was everybody in England over the Crippin case. That brings me to the wireless. On the third day out, I gave my wireless operator a message for Liverpool. 130 miles west of Lizard have strong suspicions that Crippin, London's cellar murderer and accomplice, are among saloon passengers. Accomplice dressed as boy, voice, manner and build undoubtedly a girl. I remember Mr. Robinson sitting in a deck chair looking at the wireless aerials and listening to the crackling of our crude spark transmitter and remarking to me what a wonderful invention it was. I sent several more reports but our weak transmitting apparatus was soon out of communication with land. We could hear other ships at a great distance however and you may imagine my excitement when my operator brought me a message he had intercepted from a London newspaper to its representative aboard the White Star liner Laurentic, which was also heading westward across the Atlantic. What is Inspector Dew doing? Is he sending and receiving wireless messages? Is he playing games with passengers? Are passengers excited over chase? Rush reply. This was the first I knew that my message to Liverpool had caused Inspector Dew to catch the first boat out, the Laurentic. With her superior speed, I knew she would reach the Newfoundland coast before me. I hoped that if she had any news for me, the Laurentic would leave it at the Belle Island station to be transmitted to me as soon as I passed that point on my approach to Canada. She had news indeed. We'll board you at Father Point, strictly confidential, from Inspector Dew, Scotland Yard, on board Laurentic. I replied, shall arrive Father Point 6am tomorrow. Should advise you to come off in a small boat with pilot, disguised as pilot. This was confirmed. The last night was dreary and anxious, the sound of our foghorn every few minutes adding to the monotony. The hours dragged on as I paced the bridge. Now and then I could see Mr Robinson strolling about the deck. I'd invited him to get up early to see the pilots come aboard at Father Point in the River St Lawrence. When they did so, they came straight to my cabin. I sent for Mr Robinson. When he entered, I stood with the detective facing the door, holding my revolver inside my coat pocket. As he came in, I said, Let me introduce you. Mr Robinson put out his hand. The detective grabbed it at the same time removing his pilot's cap and said, Good morning, Dr. Crippen. 
Do you know me? I'm Inspector Dew from Scotland Yard. Crippin quivered. Surprise struck him dumb. And then he said, Thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I couldn't stand it any longer. Crippin was executed, but Ethelden Lenev, charged as an accessory, was acquitted. Our final report this episode comes from August the 1st, 1966, and the Daily Telegraph. It's a report by Donald Saunders, who writes that England scored four, and West Germany two, after extra time. Hurst, three, Haller, Peters and Weber also scored. There were 93,000 at Wembley for the World Cup final of 1966. Now, the Jules Remade trophy is safely in England's keeping for the next four years. Alf Ramsey and his world champions can at last put up their feet and briefly enjoy the privileges due to their all-conquering heroes. For two hours that strained the emotions of all who watched, both teams played with dogged persistence, supreme courage and methodical efficiency. It took a man of character and judgment to lead England back into the game after Wilson, making his first mistake of the tournament, had nodded the ball down to the feet of Haller, who promptly slammed it past the unsighted banks. In that dreadful twelfth minute, Moore, who was yesterday named the world's top footballer, rose calmly, quietly but firmly to the occasion. England's captain, noting that West Germany, perhaps unwisely, were employing the normally enterprising Beckenbauer to shadow Bobby Charlton, decided he could and should risk playing a more attacking role. Though Moore's move forward caused some anxiety behind him, it helped produce the pressure that ultimately relaxed the Germans' grip in midfield. Within six minutes, England were level. Hurst racing ten yards to head in a free kick from Moore, while the Germans mistakenly kept close watch on the Charlton brothers. After the break, the German defence looked less and less sure of themselves, and 13 minutes from time, their failure to clear a corner kick from Ball allowed the alert Peters to force the ball past Tukowski. Now it was the Germans' turn to call on their courage, and their plea was not in vain. Tenaciously, they fought to deprive England of possession, and 30 seconds from the end of normal time, they snatched the equaliser, Weber popping the ball into the net. Within three minutes of the first period remaining, Hurst thumped across from ball straight at goal, and Tukowski pushed it against the underside of the bar, whence it rebounded to the turf. The Germans will forever claim the ball did not cross the line. The Russian linesman, Tofik Bakharov, ruled otherwise. During the second period of extra time, Hurst scored his third goal. to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>